Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Simon, and the show, as it is always, is the stories we live by. And today, it is my great pleasure to uh, have a discussion with Robert Whitaker, who is an ex-journalist uh, and who did a story on the mental health field. Um, uh, that I, was it nominated for the Pulitzer Prize? I was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. A finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. How dare they not give it to you? Uh, yeah. uh, and that turned into uh, his book, which will be the basis of our discussion today, Mad in America, Bad Science, Bad Medicine, and the Enduring Mistreatment of the Mentally Ill. Uh, and quite an incredible book. And in a just world, will have sold millions and millions of copies and led to a revolution in the mental health field. But uh, I don't think we live in that just world. <laughs> no, it, it didn't sell millions of copies, I can okay. assure you. <laughs> so it's not a just world. And uh, subsequent to Mad in America, uh, Bob <clears throat> wrote uh, The Map Maker's Wife, which was the, about the first scientific expedition to the New World, I guess you took some time off from the mental health field. Yeah, I had to get away. <laughs> you had to get away, yeah. And uh, then On the Laps of the Gods, uh, a book uh, that is about the second worst racial uh, massacre in American history or world history? No, in American history. It occurred in 1919. Quickly, tell us a little about that before we get on to the other book. Well, real quickly, it was uh, 1919 was this horrible year. There was racial fighting in 25 cities and it sort of came to a climax in the, in, the, in Arkansas, in this little town by the um, next to the Mississippi River, and it, most of the killing was actually done by uh, army troops who came in. There were sharecroppers, black sharecroppers, organizing a union. The plantation owners didn't like that. Uh, they killed. They, they they stormed a union meeting. They killed a few blacks. Uh, the blacks, however, fought back. The sharecroppers fought back. Killed a couple of whites. At that point. Uh, first of all, some posses came in from surrounding towns, began killing blacks willy-nilly. And then army troops, theoretically uh, from Little Rock, theoretically to restore the peace, came out with machine guns and killed over 100 black men, women, and children. In addition, every black person in the area was rounded up, and anyone belonging to the union was sent to jail. The 12 union leaders were sentenced to die in the electric chair, um, and at that point, a man named Scipio Africanus Jones, who was born a slave, but had become a lawyer, mounted an appeal, and he eventually saved all 12 men condemned to die. He saved uh, something around 75 other union members who had been sentenced to 21 years in jail. And it produced a legal decision called Moore versus Dempsey that became a precedent for the application of the Bill of Rights to the states and really the precedent for the right to a fair trial in states. So oh, out of this horrible, horrible uh, tragedy and shameful tragedy came an inspiring victory, one that really sort of uh, was the first civil rights decision in many ways. Uh-huh, terrific. Um, I'm going to get that book myself. I hope Good, I'd like to hear that. <laughs> I mean, no, that sounds great. Um, uh, your book is being part of a, of a book club I have down here where I live, uh, and that's why I thought to call you up and interview you about it, because um, the people in the book club, I hope, will come on here and, and listen to this conversation. But that's another book that uh, sounds like it would be a terrific uh, piece for discussion. Let's, let's go back to then Mad in America. Oh, by the way, let me just finish that you have a contract 
to come back to the mental health field. That's right. Uh, uh, the anatomy of an epidemic. Right. So this this contract is with Crown, which is part of Random House. Um, and really what I'm looking at in broad-based way is, as you know, we have this popular belief in our society that there have been great advances in the care of the mentally ill, that there's been, quote, a psychopharmacology revolution, that we now have all these effective drugs. And so that's really what I'm looking at. Have we had a revolution? And the, and the, the basis of this is, is this. If you look at the number of people disabled by mental illness in our country um, and the way we define disability today in the government are those who are receiving SSI or SSDI, in other words, a government paycheck, because they're disabled. Anyway, that number has soared over the past 50 years. It's tripled in the last 20 years alone. So that raises an obvious question. If we have all these advances in, in medicines that are theoretically so much better than before, why are we seeing such a remarkable rise in the number of people who can't work and can't function well in society because of mental illness? It seems yeah. counterintuitive. Exactly. So that's what I'm exploring. Right. Has there been a drug revolution? Have we had these great advances in care? Well, has there been a revolution in creating a permanent class of people defined as mentally ill so that uh, business is good for the professionals, Business is good for the drug companies, and business is good for those people who adapt to a way of life uh, that they would fight to hold on to. Well, you're sort of jumping to the conclusion here. <laughs> but, uh, I, again, I jump to the conclusion. Yeah, I mean, I don't, basic... have, I don't have to develop an argument for the reader. Right. Uh, I, you know, I tell you a quick story. When uh, I was still working in the cliff, you know, the uh, clinic, uh, the mental health clinic at Flushing Hospital. I had a number of patients, and I had to write letters to SSI each uh, month or year, whatever, that they couldn't work. And there was no basis for me to write a letter that they couldn't work. A lot of these people didn't want to work because they were being paid, in effect, not to work, but they were also being paid to accept the fact that they were defective, that they couldn't work. Right. And, I mean, go ahead, sorry. And no, so if I refused to write the letter, they simply got someone else to write the letter. Uh, because uh, there's a whole industry involved in, in this kind of a thing. But anyway, let's go back to the Made in America, okay. which is a horror story. Pretty much. <laughs> it's a horror story. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about the, the horror, um, the early parts of it, and then the Quaker Revolution, which didn't last very long? Sure. Well, let me, Larry, if you don't mind, I'll just tell you that I'll just start by starting what were my under, what was my understanding of this history before I began to sure. research it. And my understanding was sort of a typical one, and that was that the bad old days, we mistreated the mentally ill horribly, and then the good old days, starting really with the arrival of Thorazine in the 1950s, was a much more uh, sympathetic and a much more humane era. So as part of this myth of America of getting sort of of progress, part of that in this field of treating the uh, caring for the mentally ill is we went from locking them up in chains in the 1800s to this sort of modern era where we bedlam. Yeah, bedlam in the past and this more humane era in the in the present. So that was my beginning understanding. And then what you find when you start researching the history is a much 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 more complicated story. 
And if we go back to uh, colonial times and really when the country was founded, we do see a real denigration of the mentally ill, and part of that is because of the philosophy of being that ruled at that time, and that was that reason is what separates us from the, from the animals. It's what mm-hmm. makes us human. And the mad, by virtue of having lost their reason, really had descended to the level of brutes. Well, once you conceive of the mentally ill in this way, you can right. see why you would treat them in brutish fashion. So they were thought not to feel heat or cold, so they would be kept in cells in essence. The very first hospital, Pennsylvania Hospital, had cells uh, where they were often left naked. They bedded on straw. They even initially had things where the, the population from Philadelphia could come and look at the mad people in the same way that you would look at creatures in a zoo. Um, and so that was the first conception of the mentally ill, and often they thought that, uh, you know, very aggressive medical things, uh, aggressive bleeding, keeping people confined in chairs for a long time, spinning them. Benjamin Rush. Yeah, Benjamin Rush, he's the father the, of American really psychiatry. The father of psychiatry, held up as the father of psychiatry and one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Right, one of the very brightest men of the 18th century, no question about it. And the odd thing is, in some ways, he was sympathetic to the, the, the mentally ill, um, much more so than I would say than many people were, but he also had you know, trained at uh, you know, uh, Scottish school. In other words, he had, he had inherited those, the teachings that came from English and Scottish physicians, and they talked about inducing terror, they talked about drowning therapies, they talked about horrible bleeding, spinning therapies, all these sort of physical things that were quite aggressive and we would see as just horrific today. So he embraced those medical therapies for the mentally ill. And again, it, it arose from this conception of the mad by virtue of having lost their reason of, of having descended to the level of brutes. Now, you asked about the Quakers. Yes, because in that's the, an interesting bright spot in, in, in the overall, because the doctors, medical doctors, were not, uh, under, them, under the Quakers, really responsible for the care, were they? No, no, the, and this really, I would say, and I think there are other historians that agree with me, if you want to look at the high point of our care of the mentally ill, it came in the first half of the 1800s, first half of the 19th century, and it was a religious response to madness, not a medical response. Right. And what happened is its roots go back to Quakers in York, England, where um, they were sort of appalled by the treatment of the mad in, in, in Bedlam and in other English facilities at that time. And they said, listen, we don't know what causes madness, but we think of them as brethren. In other words, not as brutes. They reconceived them as, as like us. Well, the minute you reconceive, quote, the mad as brethren, well, how should you treat them? Well, you should treat them as you would like to be treated. And so they conceived of, of, of providing, in essence, an asylum in the form of a refuge, a retreat out in the country, and how would they, re- how would they care for the mad? Well, there'd be nice gardens for them to go to walks in. Uh, the idea was they would dress up well. There would be exercise. They might engage in poetry. They'd be fed four times a day. There'd be an afternoon sherry. Uh, there'd be entertainment brought in. So the idea was we do not know what causes madness. All we know is we conceive of the, of the mad as brethren. Therefore, we should treat them as we would like to be treated. 
and, and that governed their care. Now, the interesting thing is, and they opened their first one, I think, in 1796 in York, England. And by the way, you can still go there, and there is still a moral treatment facility there in York. Is that um, so? Yeah, and actually, believe it or not, they still uh, embrace a lot of the same principles. Hmm. They, don't, they don't make use of restraints. Um, I mean, I, we can talk about that in, in a second, but that, that philosophy still lives there. Um, anyway, they had good results. So, for example, when, when they were doing all these horrible things in hospitals and, and, and places to the mad, they often talked about how violent the mad were and how aggressive they were. Well, next thing you know, in the Quaker asylum in York, they weren't getting violence. They weren't getting people trying to, you know, uh, threaten their caretakers. Why not? Because the caretakers weren't treating them so badly. Right. Um, so, and that philosophy, so the Tooks, uh, Samuel and William Took, they, they write about this, and then Quakers in the United States in the early 1800s, around 1812, 1815, start opening such asylums here in the United States. And this was called as, known as moral therapy, which meant tending to the emotions. And the first ones we get are, in essence, let's build these refuges out in the country and treat them as brethren. And, and, brethren. and as you, Larry, said, the idea wasn't initially that you'd have a medical doctor at the head of these asylums. The idea was really medical, medical care had failed. That's what had given us these aggressive forms. And what we needed was basically um, you know, empathetic figures, almost religious figures, that would be very sympathetic and caring for right. for those under their charge. Right. You know, it's interesting. I have a 40-year history of working with people labeled as mentally ill. And very few of them, very few, have anything less than a horrible story to tell about their lives. Right. Uh, what's interesting is that most of the psychiatrists and many of my, my psychological brethren would say, well, this is delusional. Because whenever you don't want to believe something someone says, prove that they're, you know, they're crazy, and therefore what they're saying is a delusion. It's a false belief. My guess is that if my theory is right, and this is a theory, I can't prove it, that the care they got under the Quakers was probably the fairest, most just, and the kindest that they had ever experienced in their life. And that's why so many of them seem to, uh, uh, you know, I, I hate the word recover because I don't think any of these people are literally sick, but but recover. I'll use the word because uh, it's the common word. That's Listen, my guess. Well, first of all, I think you well, just to sort of put this in what the framework you're talking about. There's nothing worse than if you're a person, and then you're being told that what that your experience, that your sense of yourself is delusional. If you start talking about some trauma you've had, and then you're told it's not true. I mean, right. I mean, that's just horrible. That's like a negating of yourself. Yes, it's a, it's a dehumanization. It it's is. a dehumanization, and this is who we are. So you can see why that's not helpful. Um, and yes, there was absolutely a sense of listening uh, to in these moral therapy places, of listening, of valuing what they had to say. And by the way, there was also something. This sounds so old school, but... If you look at the interaction between the superintendents and eventually some were doctors and their patients, there was a sense of willpower, like you can choose to be sane, and the next time you feel this sort of bad impulse right. coming over you, you know, right. fight it. And right. here's the thing is, is what you were talking about, whether you want to call it recovery or whatever, is 
you know, the majority of patients would be discharged. And these were very sick, you know, these were people who were quite, quote, insane. The majority in the, in the course of a year would be discharged. And the best long-term follow-up study we have, which was done out of um, following patients that were treated at the Wooster Asylum in Massachusetts, I think from 1843 to 1856, and it looked in on those patients 30 years later, and they followed them up. And it was like a 1,000 patients. And 58% of those discharged never came back to the asylum. In right. other words, they never had such a relapse they had to come back. There right. was another 7% that had died in that 30 years. Not, that's not unusual. And right. only like one-third had come back to the asylum. Well, now, those are results in terms of relapse rates that we would die for today. That's right. We don't get anything close to that. Right, right. So... I think arguably that old stool, old style care under the Quakers produced the highest sort of recovery rates, if you want to call it, that we've ever seen in this country. And right. it's been completely forgotten. Right. I think it's forgotten, but I don't think it's forgotten uh, uh, accidentally. I think it's forgotten given my, you know, my bias, and this is my bias, uh, that we have what I call a mental health industry. Well, we definitely have a mental health industry today, no question. Yes, and it feeds on large numbers of people thinking of themselves as permanent patients in need of some kind of care, whether it's psychotherapy or whether it's chemotherapy given by, you know, the medical profession, although to the everlasting shame of psychology, more and more psychologists are now getting prescription privileges. So that right, they and, and as that happens, care. their criticism of the drugs will abate. Yes, it'll be, but it's already abating. Yeah, it's already abating. I, I mean, it's like, a, it's like a done deal, and, and it makes me frantic, because I'll get into this later with you, of what's happening to us as a citizenry. Because when you have a citizenry of defective, damaged people, uh, they're not exactly going to listen to the president's call for participant government. Uh, it's going no, to, it becomes it's part of a, a victimization type. Yes. Feeling yes. a sense of self. That's so, what happened to the Quakers? What happened to the? What's the next stage in the happy story? Yeah, I think there's really three stages that 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 really well, maybe two stages that come after this, or three. What happens is this: um, there's a reformer named Dorothea Dix, a Massachusetts reformer, who had her own sort of breakdown, and went to to England and was actually sort of uh, nursed back to health by the Tooks, by the Took family. So she saw the benefits of moral therapy. Right. So in the 1850s, she says, she starts lobbying states saying, we have to bring this form of care to the, the masses, so to speak, because these old moral therapy asylums established by the Quakers, they were supposed to be kept small, maybe 200 people in maximum, etc. They were privately funded. And so she said to the states, We've got to build these asylums and make them available to everybody. And, you know, that, that's a good impulse, right? And even bring it to the poor. And she was able to show that there were many poor people, in fact, mentally ill, being kept in horrible uh, conditions, in jails, et cetera, chained up, et cetera. And so we responded, the country responded, the states responded with a wave of asylum building. The problem is the moment that happened and you started building these bigger institutions, everybody started dumping everybody in there, including their, 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 their people with syphilis, in-stage dementia related to syphilis, their alcoholics, the people that today, that, uh, you know, the senile elderly, all these people with neurological conditions, and of course, they're not going to get better. And so in the second half of the 1800s, what we saw was those old small asylums where people used to get 
uh, well, the moral therapy asylums, transform into these huge state hospitals with 1,000 people, 1,500 people, and all the old moral therapy form of care, the idea of exercise and four meals a day and wine and all that, that went by the wayside and they right. became just sort of these uh, places to you know, keep people locked up. People stopped going home, of course, especially those with neurological diseases. And moral therapy came to be seen as a failed form of care. But what people didn't realize, it was failed because of all these you know, patients being dumped. We no longer had moral therapy. So that's the first thing that happens. And by the end of the 1800s, the asylum superintendents, who are now, that's really the forerunner of the American Psychiatric Association, they say, we've got to embrace medicine. Well, what is happening in American medicine around the turn of the century? Well, the whole country is follow, uh, you know, falling under the influence of eugenics. And, and eugenics is this belief, and it really does arise from the Darwinian understanding of evolution, is that you know, species evolve over time. And since species evolve over time, the human species can clearly evolve. And well, what do you need to do? Well, if a society wants to stay healthy, and this is what uh, English eugenicists first argued, you have to encourage the well-bred to breed, to have kids, and you've got to prevent those who have bad genes or bad germplasm from breeding. Well, who has the worst germplasm, the worst genetic makeup. Well, of course, the mentally ill are going to be the first to be targeted. Right. Um, and so all of a sudden, you get this philosophy towards the mentally ill that comes in uh, after the, the first years of the 1900s that says the mentally ill, in essence, are a threat to society. Society, yes. And that's really key because if they're a threat to society, they're a cancer in society, now they become a focus. They're no longer brethren. But there's, you know, they're not. There's something right. else. They're a threat. There's something. They're, 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 they're ruining us. Yeah, actually, and, they're even worse than the beast. They're worse than the beast. They're like, and you can see this in the eugenic hate. tracks. They yeah. should become a focus of hate and fear, and 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 actually, we need to eradicate this from our society. We need to eradicate their germplasm. And and who were the people who funded the money for this so-called research? Oh well, the so you know it comes from, of course. Um, well, first of all, it's very much a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant movement, of course, because they're saying, you know, we have the best genes, we who founded this country. Right, so there's a racial those... thing here, too. What's that? There's a racial piece here. Oh, there's a racial piece. So it, it becomes basically, it, it's, the further you're away from WASP, the more ill-bred you are. So if you're from Southern Europe, right. that's not good. If you're Jewish, uh, that's not good. And there's all these sort of bad character traits associated with them. If you're black, of course, you're sort of subhuman. Um, so there's this whole categorization of human beings, wasp at the top, and then we get sort of Southern Europeans, and then maybe Jews below the Southern Europeans, blacks, of course, below anybody with white skin, and then the worst is the mentally ill. They may even be seen as worse than blacks or sort of subhuman as well. So we really get these subhuman groups under eugenic categories of blacks right. and uh, um, uh, of the mentally ill. And, you know, so it's, it's, in some ways the eugenics is seen as a public health movement. Right. We get people like uh, uh, Rockefeller and Kellogg and all saying that if we want to have good public health, we have to adopt these eugenic policies that says let's encourage the rich and well-born, the wasps, to have large families, and let's prevent these other people with bad genes 
from having uh, any kids at all. So towards the mentally ill, what does that mean in terms of policy? It means, A, you prevent them from marrying. You pass laws saying the mentally ill, the insane can't marry. And by the way, those laws in essence are still on the books in many places. Um, and the problem, as the eugenicist said, is when people, when the, when the, when people quote the insane signed up when, the, when they went to get their marriage license, they failed to admit they were insane. So those, those laws didn't really work. So they said, we have to sequester them in asylums. Now, the minute you say this, and we have to sequester them in asylums in hospitals, and we have to keep them there until they pass the breeding age. So now all of a sudden, asylums or hospitals aren't places where you go to rest and relax and try to regain your ability to function in society. They become lockups for those we say who are mentally ill. They're prisons. They're prisons. And they're going to be there until at least they pass their breeding age. And you can read eugenicists saying the sequestration of the mentally ill is fairly complete. And, and this is when we get this huge rise in the number of people hospitalized, quote, hospitalized for mentally, mental illness. Right. It comes as the eugenic policies take hold. Right. Now, the third thing we have, of course, is forced sterilization. Indiana passes that law in 1907. We start getting the mentally ill forcibly sterilized, and it's in 1927, I think, or 26, that the U.S. Supreme Court says, yes, this is constitutional. We can forcibly sterilize these people. And this goes on, you know, for, for basically 50 years, 40 years. And we, by the way, the United States, we're the first eugenic country in the world, not Nazi Germany. We embrace these things as social policy. We're yes. the first ones with forced sterilization laws. Yes. And when Hitler comes to power in 1933, he actually sends people to the United States to see our eugenic policies. And then when he starts doing forced sterilization, we actually have sort of mutual exchange, and we send some eugenicists to see how they're implementing their forced sterilization of mentally ill. And you actually see American eugenicists complaining, saying, Christ, the Germans are getting, they're, they're doing this better than we are. They're getting ahead of us. We've got to catch up. And you can see where this leads. Well, it, it leads right to the death camps. Absolutely. And, and it, I, I think we were lucky that it didn't happen here. Uh, well, there, 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 as early as 1920s, there was some talk about uh, killing the mentally ill in the United States. You know, I, I, can, I read a New York Times article. They, they talked about legislators going to a kinetic hospital where a man was put on exhibit as someone who might benefit, so to speak, from being put to death. Right, it would be good for him. Yeah, and he, put him he, out of his misery. Put you him know, out of his misery. The whole, uh, what I was fascinated by is that one of the heroes to uh, women today is, uh, what's the lady's name who did all the birth control? Oh, Mar uh, Sanger. Ma yeah, Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist. Absolutely. And she didn't believe that the rich, the well-born, and the whites should stop having children. She believed they should have as many children as possible because it's only the untermenschen, the, 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 the dregs of humanity among the poor and, and the mentally ill and those who are uh, the beasts, if you will, carrying this defective germplasm were the ones who should be using birth control. Yeah, you know, this is part she of She was the, nobody's liberator, this lady. Well, this is part of the history of the birth control story that people don't like to go into. No. Because, you know, birth control generally is seen as a progressive thing, right? Yes. It's part of feminism. It's part of women taking control of their yes. own. Yes. 
uh, you know, bodies, etc. But its roots are, are exactly what you say. It yeah, has they're, eugenic they're in, roots. Right. They were in eugenic roots. It's fascinating. No, no question about it. Now, you know, I just... Uh, see, to me, eugenics is still very much around, even though they don't speak as they used to speak. The whole movement uh, towards mapping the genome and looking, for example, for the genes that underlie schizophrenia and other serious forms of mental illness is the same damn thing. Well, first of all, you know, that root, the roots of that go back to the eugenics era. So, for example, if you actually look at some of the data that initially was um, used to, 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 to support the idea that there are genes for schizophrenia, it comes from a guy named Franz Kalman. Who's Kalman, a, yes. Yeah, and so and it comes from in essence Nazi generated data as well. So this you can see why this fits, right? So yes. if you have a eugenic attitude and you believe that you know that the mentally ill have bad germplasm, well you're going to start doing these genetic trees and all to show that they are tainted by their heredity. And therefore it makes sense to you know not let them breed or in Nazi Germany's case, of course, because it was the... that They started their Holocaust by killing the mentally ill before they turned their attention uh -huh. to killing Jewish uh -huh. people. Though the first to go were the psychiatric patients. Yeah. But So you're absolutely right. What are the roots for genetic causes of mental disorders? They're absolutely rooted in, in eugenic conceptions of the mentally ill and the desire to prove them as defective. And you know that there is, to this date, not one shred of decent scientific evidence that anybody labeled with any diagnosis in the entire vast DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, has any basis in genetics or biochemistry of any kind. Uh, so one of my listeners just put in, uh, is ADD or ADHD real? Uh, and I wrote back to him, uh, no, it's not real. None of these things are real illnesses by a medical standard. Uh, Let me. Can, I'm going to play a little bit. I'm going to get a little bit of trouble with you here. Here's the only way I don't. Here, here's. Okay. So, here's what I believe. Okay. Sure. <laughs> a little bit different than what you believe. Um, do, do, do I believe that we have identified any biological cause for any, you know, for say depression? No. Do we know the biology of schizophrenia? No. Uh, manic depressive, whatever you want to call it, etc. None of that biology has been identified. Right. Has there been a gene identified for any of those disorders? Like there's a certain gene for schizophrenia? No. First right. of all, I do believe there's no such thing as, quote, schizophrenia. Well, that's the other thing. Well, hold it. But let me say, you know, schizophrenia is a catch-all term for a lot of different symptoms. So, in other words, it's a catch-all term for many, many different right. symptoms. Here's where I think I disagree a little bit with you, Larry, is... I think in some cases there is something going wrong biologically with, say, some people who get diagnosed with schizophrenia. I don't think we know what it is, right? but I do think there are some biological things amiss. Okay. Uh, so now, that's where I think that, that is different. And I, I will say um, with, well, first of all, what we call bipolar today um, you know, is used to be a very rare disorder. Right. In it, other it, words, now, it happened very... But you do see throughout history uh, some people who do sort of move between depression and elation, etc. Yes. But, by the way, it's a sm in terms of it 
reaching pathological states, it's a very rare disorder. And anyway, I will say I think the hereditary link for that particular group is better than for any other. Yeah, well, you know, I'll tell you this way. Put it this way to you, Bob. The moment some data appears that substantiates any of our intuitive belief that there's something biologically wrong, and it can be shown that this biological difference predicts the behaviors we call symptoms, right. which I see as adaptive behaviors right. in situations that most of the time we're completely unaware of. We're not aware of the context most of the time that drive people crazy. When you work with the families of these people, you very often see, right. if I spent two weeks in those families, I think I'd be out of my mind. Right. But we can escape from them. The moment that happens, I'll come on the air and I will say, they have demonstrated a biological and endor a genetic link. Right. But as of this moment, we as don't far have, as I know, it does, it's not there. We don't and have that knowledge. it's not there, you can't That's... start saying, as we're going to talk about now in the, the remaining half hour, let's biologically treat the illness. If you can't prove it's an illness, then you're giving people chemicals and you're doing things to them. That's changing behavior, Right. Right. But not necessarily treating anything. Well, listen, okay, so let's go to what's happening. You're, you're absolutely right. If you don't know the biology of what's wrong, you can't say you're fixing that biology. I mean, that's just logical, That's right? a lie, yes. Yeah, that is a lie. But it's even worse than that in this sense. The lie, of course, is... It, the, Hold the on sort one of, second. Someone is calling in. Maybe we'll give them a chance. Let's see. Hello? 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 Hello, 4528802111. Wait a second. I can't get them on. Hello? Yeah, hello? Yes. Hi. Ah, uh, now you can hear me. It's Marion. Hi. Oh, hello, Marion. <laughs> How are you? Hi. I'm fine, thanks. What about what? you? Would you what like about to... you? I'm sorry. I'm um, fine. Yeah, I have a question um, because you know the latest findings uh, where they say they found the cause of schizophrenia, some some uh, different chromosomes. You know, I, I don't know if you've heard about it. Can I can I chime in on that? Yeah, go ahead, Bob. Well, actually, I think the latest findings is there was, and I think this goes back about a year ago. Is, yeah. Is that when they act? You know, because we've been hearing about schizophrenia genes for some time. Um, yeah. and, I, and I don't know this research real well, okay? But there was basically a paper that came out uh, a while back that basically um, said that the, this link between certain genes, sort of clusters of genes as opposed to a single gene and schizophrenia, mm. right. it, it, that e- even that presumed connection wasn't as strong as that had been told to the public. Um, and I forget the paper, but they, they sort of reviewed... Uh, all the evidence they could find on this link between genetic links and schizophrenia and found it at, at best a very f- sort of uh, uh, tenuous genetic link. Yeah, let me kick in here. One of the, the uh, Marion, I don't know if you're aware of, uh, and I know you, Bob, know Jay Joseph's work. Yeah, I know Jay Joseph's work. Uh, he has a book called genetic, The Gene Illusion, Genetic Research in Psychiatry and Psychology Under the Microscope. And he goes through the whole history of this. Ultimately, you can't say the gene creates anything until you can find the gene that's associated and then predict the emergence of schizophrenia from the presence of the particular gene or chromosome. 
That hasn't happened. They're nowhere near Well, and, and can I just jump in there? One thing, the yeah. most anybody says is that people have sort of a genetic vulnerability, vulnerability to skip right. So no one I think that. is saying that, you know, like if you have a gene for Huntington's disease, you get the disease, right? But I don't think anyone's trying to claim that if you have, the quote, this sort of genetic uh, predisposition, you necessarily right. get schizophrenic. Right. You know, or, or I think it was Jay put it or somebody put it. If you look at the people who went to college, their children go to college. Right. There must be, therefore, a gene for going to college. That's exactly the logic we're talking about here. You take a pattern of adaptive behavior, and you say it runs in families, it must be the gene. The fact of the matter is, if you look at the research, it's bogus. They haven't done it. Uh, in fact, what I may do, uh, and I don't want to get sidetracked on this because we have a way to go with, uh, uh, with Bob's book, uh, I'm going to try to contact Jay Joseph and put him on the show and have a conversation because he's also uh, really on top of this moment to moment. I've been hearing since I've been in graduate school, they found this gene, they found that gene, and a year later they say, whoops, you haven't found the gene. Right. What what Jay Joseph also shows is that whole that there is a real problem with that whole body of of data because some of it does arise from, you know, 1930s and 1940s right. research right. that's tainted by this whole eugenic preconceptions. So we move past the eugenics, and we go into the era of too much brain. Right. So which well, is to me go... the most one of the most monstrous in in the entire history of psychiatry. And, and one of the more upsetting chapters in your book. Right, it's really the second half of the book. Larry, let's go to, let's pick up a, a, a thread you were raising just a second ago. Go ahead. And that, that goes to the sense of, um, of, do we know what's wrong biologically? And therefore, because, and then, you know, treatment with, quote, chemicals. When, what I was about to say is the story we have, sort of the, the, the childish story that has been presented is that these things are, you know, Mental disorders are caused by chemical imbalances in the brain, right? And then the drugs balance the brain chemistry. They're antidotes to that abnormality. But the interesting thing is, and here's really, the, in my opinion, the betrayal by psychiatry, modern psychiatry of the American people, is, first of all, where did that theory arise from? It, it, it arose from an understanding of how the drugs act on the brain. So, for example, they understood that Thorazine and those drugs blocked dopamine, so they said, aha, they theorized maybe schizophrenia is caused by dopamine right. hyperactivity. Those theories of chemical imbalances arose to explain why the drugs worked, okay? Then they investigated that. Do people with uh, schizophrenia have hyperactive dopamine systems? They investigated that in the 70s. They found it not to be so. Not to be so. Absolutely. Yeah. And take the serotonin hypothesis of depression. You know that that's caused by low serotonin. Right. That, was, that was investigated in the 1970s. In 1984, the NIMH said there's no evidence of a, of, a, of a malfunction in the serotonin system in people with depression. And what they found is that people with depression had basically the normal spectrum levels of serotonin activity right. in the brain. To, to the degree that they could be measured at all. That's right. And, then, and we really can talk, can't measure these things. Well, they measure what's called metabolites, yeah, et cetera. Metabolites. It's an indirect measurement. It's indirect. But, and then eventually they sort of figure out some ways to do some measurement in, in living. Anyway, it's, I don't even know, some, through some dying techniques, et cetera. Oh, that was a receptor levels. But the point of this is this. is 
what they found is that the drugs perturb normal systems and they actually cause chemical imbalances. So, for example, uh, schizophrenia was hypothesized to be due to too much dopamine activity in the brain. Now, initially they found, okay, the neurons aren't putting out too much dopamine. They said, well, maybe people with schizophrenia have too many dopamine receptors. That's the biological abnormality, and that's why blocking the receptors by the drugs works. Well, what they found is, before you gave people the drugs, they had normal levels of receptors. But what they found is that when you give a person a, 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 the drug that blocks the receptors, the brain says, uh-oh, I got a problem and it increases its, its density of receptors. So once a person is placed on an antipsychotic, they actually do end up with an abnormal brain. They end up with right. too many dopamine receptors. So what psychiatry found was that the drugs caused the very abnormality that they theorized was behind the disorder in the first place. Indeed. But they never confessed up. Now, no. the other thing that they found, and this is what I'm working on in this book, is that increase in dopamine receptors actually does lend itself to greater psychosis over time. So, in effect, <clears throat> the, the drugs, antipsychotic drugs, cause a change in the brain that over the long term leads to greater psychosis, not a reduction. And this is really clear in the research literature if you, if you follow it out. And you actually can't believe how much it shows up, but it shows up time and time and time again. And that's the betrayal, is that here we have people, parents, being told that their kids suffer from a chemical imbalance and the drugs are fixing that chemical imbalance, when in fact, what the science showed is we don't know what's wrong. These people do not have abnormal uh, neurotransmitter systems, but once they're placed on the drugs, those drugs perturb normal function, which does cause a change in behavior, and, though, and they cause a change in the brain. The yes. brain tries to compensate for, in essence, this thing that's blocking its normal function. So they are abnormalizers. And that's the betrayal, is we, we tell people they have something wrong with their brain, that they have a broken brain, when in fact we didn't find that, and then we give them a drug that in fact does cause an abnormality, and, and, we never, and we tell them we're fixing something. That is medical betrayal is the only way to put it. Medical murder. It's really it's, it's a horrendous thing. I want to call things what they are. And, and, and we are going to discover that in the history, when this history is written, if there's anybody around to read it, that uh, the iatrogenic catastrophe caused by all of this is going to be monumental. Absolutely monumental. Well, I will say this. If you look at this, here's what you see in the outcomes literature over and over again. You may see some uh, efficacy with the drugs over a short term, four to six weeks. So they may knock down a target symptom on rating scales better than placebo over four to six weeks, okay? And that's why they get approved for the FDA, et cetera. But over the long term, you see... A, increased chronicity of the target symptoms. So if you look at, and NIMH just had a long-term study on this that looked at, that just followed patients, okay? And followed all patients diagnosed at two Chicago hospitals for 15 years. And what did they find? They found that recovery rates for those off meds was 40%. Recovery rates for those on meds was 5%. They found that those who stayed on their meds were three times as likely to be actively psychotic than those off meds. Anyway, so what do you see with, 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 with psychiatric medications long-term? A, you see increased chronicity of the target symptom. That's number one. 
Number two, you see often new psychiatric symptoms arise over time with the use of the meds. You see physical problems arise with the meds over time. Serious and basically, stuff. serious stuff, whether it be tardive dyskinesia, um, well, that's the most obvious, but you see metabolic problems. You see all sorts of physical health problems that do culminate in early death. And then you, um, you also see cognitive impairment. You see some dysfunction in terms of memory, problem solving, all the things we do you know, that make us uh, you know, good human beings. And, of course, you see some emotional numbing. So that's actually, you know, the antipsychotics are, are, are worse than the benzodiazepines, and the benzodiazepines appear a little worse than the SSRIs. But if you believe in scientific literature, if you believe in evidence-based medicine, which is what mainstream psychiatry says should guide their practices, right? That's what you see in evidence-based NIMH-funded research long-term. You see increased chronicity, you see new symptoms, you see physical disability, and you see cognitive impairment, and it all culminates in an incredible rise in the number of people disabled and, un and unable to work, and early death. As you know, the mentally ill are now dying something like 25 years earlier than normal. Um, so that's the, I, the scope of the iatrogenic uh, epidemic you're talking about. And last thing you can see, I'm getting on my horse here. Oh, on. I love getting on but, your horse. But we are now doing together. that to kids. So when you talk about kids being placed on these cocktails, five-year-olds, eight-year-olds, ten-year-olds, two-year-olds, two-year-olds, what you know is if you believe in science, if you believe in the long-term evidence done by the NIMH, you can expect those people to have psychiatric ailments, physical ailments. Their brains will shrink, by the way, over time. They're going to have cognitive impairment. They're going to have metabolic diseases, and they will die early. My guess is someone you know, placed on a med at age five, these cocktails, you know, I, I raised this with someone. What's their lifespan if they really follow that advice of staying on these cocktails? Right. And, and, and a guy said, I don't know, I think probably 30 years max. Right. So it's, it's that's an iatrogenic course, and I could go on and on and on. But if you believe science, as I do, if you believe the literature, uh, long-term literature, it tells a horrible story of iatrogenic illness. Now, Marion, who had gone on before, uh, wanted to get the point across that she had come across a study that the stimulants can cause actual changes in the chromosomes. So uh, there may be actually genetic damage that's being produced. They may ultimately find. And you know what's interesting? When these studies are shown, they say, oh, no, this is the result of the illness, not the result of the drugs. Well, they always try to pass that you, off. You can absolutely smack your head against the wall because they absolutely will turn this around. I always wonder, do these people who are really well-trained as scientists, they must be, um, do they not know what they're doing? I, 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 it's always so hard for me to understand somebody who takes an oath, and we all, one way or another, if not the medical oath, we take an oath to support the dignity and the health of human beings. If you're a psychologist, yeah. that's this part is of the, You know, I'm trying to understand this for my new book, right? Uh, you know, do, do they believe it or not? <laughs> And I think it's a combination. Um, it, it's, it's three parts. Um, one part is that, say, clinicians, so they get someone who comes in, and maybe they are really manic or psychotic or whatever, and they, get them, they give them Thorazine or they give them Haldol or they give them you know, Zyprex or whatever. And, and they do see that person become muted, right? Yes. And they see that person become more manageable. So they see someone who uh, is improving. 
All right, and they see under their from, terms. Yeah, I understand that, but nevertheless, from their perspective, they see clinical improvement. Right. Right. Now, second of all, when if if that person then goes home or whatever, and then if that person comes rapidly off the drug, they are likely to have a severe relapse. Right. Right. So next thing you know, that person comes to them back to the hospital. And in their, from their sort of clinical perception is like, oh, listen, they stopped taking the drugs, they relapsed, they need the drug. The drugs are good for them. So right. that's what they perceive. And so those people, by the way, generally, the clinicians, really don't know what the scientific literature is saying anyway. Now, the guy that did the long-term NIMH study I was telling you about, where the recovery rates were eight times higher for those off the drugs and those on, right. and that the, those on were much more psychotic, they were much more disabled, et cetera. I asked him, I interviewed him, I said, well, you know, these people who get better, why don't clinicians recognize that and, and start adopting that as part of their care? And he says, oh, the problem is, like with schizophrenia, those who get better, they stop going to see their docs. Because remember, they're stopping their drugs. They're not supposed to do that. They're going against medical advice. Right. So they stop, and those who do well, they don't come back, and they don't even tell anybody that they're schizophrenic anymore. So in this guy's study, for example, he found guys that had become professor. One became a frat professor. Right. One became a lawyer. Right, right. But they're not telling anybody they were once, quote, schizophrenic. Right, right. And I interviewed a person who just got employee of the year for her company, right? She was, quote, schizophrenic for 10 years. She doesn't want to tell anybody she's schizophrenic now. Yes. So that's part of the delusion. However, okay, so there's some honest delusion going there, at least the clinician level. But at the top levels, there is a desire to protect psychiatry and its prescribing privileges. And what they have done over the past 30 years is, um, is dishonest. And they have avoided, when, when, when results are bad for them, they don't publicize that. So, for example... We have the best NIMH long-term study. It's published in 2007, okay? It's a 15-year study. The guy who done it, it did it has done like 200 papers. Does that get publicized? Does psychiatry say, oh, crap, um, the people off meds are doing better? And by the way, there was a bipolar arm to that, and it was the group off that did much, much, much better than those on. So do they publicize that? No. In fact, they discouraged him from publicizing the results. Right. That's dishonesty. That's where you're, you're saying it's more important that we maintain this myth and we maintain psychiatry's story of these helpful drugs and it's a biological story. We place that as more important than good outcomes for our patients. That's yeah. a value decision. Or the health of the patient. Or the health of the patient. Itself. Or the vitality of the society. Right. So there is... Yeah. And, 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 they, and at the highest levels, they do it for their own benefit because they get paid by drug companies. That's right. So, you know, we saw this with Joseph Biederman. He's the guy at MGH that basically right. said to the drug companies, I'll create patients for you. I'll sort of uh, uh, make it, a, I'll say, I'll run studies that say a certain percentage of kids have bipolar. Then I'll help promote the idea that certain... Two-year-olds. Two-year-olds. Yeah, yeah. And I'll promote it. I'll authenticate the diagnosis. And I'll say that we should be treating them with these uh, atypical right. antipsychotics, even though it's making them sick as crap. Um, but you pay me, and I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to become a millionaire after this. Right. So what is he doing? Well, he is, from a moral point of view, he's sacrificing those kids in order to gain 
public, yeah. you know, to become rich. It's that's the value murder. system is that's operating. Well, well it's certainly well, slow. Murder. I'm sorry. Under any system of, under, of, of law or understanding that I know, this is absolute murder. Well, he's, you know, he's killing those kids over the long term. He's killing he's them. Take, he's, he's taking away their right to be because, yes. you know, they're going to suffer from um, yes. cognitive impairment over time. They're going to have all sorts of metabolic you know, I just problems. To throw this in. They will blimp up. They'll die early. And by the way, look what's happening to, if you look at the disability, I understand you're saying a lot of people sort of end up, you know, you know that's their new role in life is to be on SSI and yeah, SSI. Sociologically, they, 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 they become lifelong. Uh, well, now those kids who are being medicated are going right onto those roles at age 18. Right. And they are being designated lifelong mental patients from that moment yes. of first diagnosis. And so if you look at the swelling of the SSI and SSDI roles, right. there is just this huge influx of kids right at age 18. That didn't used to happen. Right. Right. So... Uh, you know whether you want to call it murder or not, we are I definitely think. designating kids to be mental patients for life, yes. and that we're doing that because it creates a market for the drugs. It makes certain guys rich. It helps psychiatry expand its influence, but it is absolutely contrary to evidence-based medicine. Yes, uh, I, I would like to spend our remaining time uh, talking a little bit about Walter Freeman and those who uh, began chopping up the brain. Uh, what's his name, Moniz? Igaz Moniz, right. Igaz Moniz, who won the Nobel Prize for medicine? Right, so uh, for what? lobotomy, for creating lobotomy, lobotomy. 1949, right, yes. which we today we view as a uh, mutilating surgery, of course. Right, but when the early Thorazine studies came out, uh, when they discovered that, they didn't look at it as a cure for the, I, I love your the title of that chemical uh, uh, alchemy, right? Uh, yeah, they didn't view it as a cure for schizophrenia. They looked at it as a chemical lobotomy, right? Because it caused the same change in being as they used to see with the surgical lobotomy. And there's a right. reason for that: is that the chemicals, thorazine and all, basically shut down frontal lobe activity. And yes. and with surgery, that's what you were doing: is you were scrambling the frontal lobes, you were destroying the frontal lobes. I once had a listen, but I, you, ha you can't understand why they got the Nobel Prize unless you look at eugenic conceptions of the mentally yes. ill. Yes. yes. So I what happened that. was the, the, the severely mentally ill or the, were seen as not having any worth, right? And they were seen as hopeless, as having no chance of getting better. Now that, by the way, is not true. But anyway, that's how they were viewed. And so uh, if we have this surgery that, puts them into, that makes them quiet, and in fact, if you read Walter Freeman's book, he's a very honest guy, he talks about knocking them down to a lower level of being. And he talks about how patients stare out the window, um, sort of like cats do. Yeah. They're no longer into house pets. As house pets. That's, isn't that fantastic? And he viewed that as a favorable outcome. So they move from people that might be tormented in some way, but that might be playing the piano, be often fantasies about what would have happened if the indigenous people had defeated the pilgrims when they arrived and sort of these... Very active mental people, very sort of often bright people, turned into people that like ate, you know, sort of stared out the, the window all day, were so lacking in self-conception that, you know, if they showed up at the dinner table with their zipper down and their brows unbuttoned, they didn't care because they had no self-awareness. But 
that was seen as an improvement. Exactly. So you actually see in the 1940s where they said, you know, lobotomy can't hurt somebody. They basically can only help people. Right. You either get no improvement or improvement. And by the way, eventually they became so enamored of that idea, they said, Ah, oh, you know, even like uh, college students, if they're distressed, bring them in. We'll smash their frontal lobes and send them home, and that's good for them. We'll eliminate the anxiety and all. I so next thing you know, yeah. this is, it's a way that medicine can dilute itself. In 1949, it's the idea is that they can, quote, pluck madness from the brain. We don't really even need our frontal lobes. They're like an appendix. And Egas Moniz gets yeah. the Nobel Prize in medicine. Just, just, you know, I had a psychiatrist. Uh, when I worked at the Flushing Hospital, and we had a patient who uh, claimed to be the Tsarina of Russia. And uh, I understood why she wanted to be the Tsarina of Russia. She came from a family where she was a nobody and a nothing. Right. And, and nice compensation to be the Tsarina. Now, of course, she's not the Tsarina. Uh, that's a false belief. It's, it's, you want to call it a delusion. And he kept saying, I'd like to get her into the hospital and scramble her brains with ECT so that she couldn't possibly be this crazy anymore. Well, you know, Larry, this really goes to one of the whole things of, about how you assess improvement, right? The whole thing with, and this right. comes a little bit from antibiotics as well, we see the diminishment of a symptom as signs of improvement, right? But we never are looking at, at what are you enabling people to do. So if we say we knock down psychosis, right, and they're no longer having these wild thoughts of being the czar, what did she say? She thought she was the... Tsarina of Russia. Tsarina of Russia. Okay, so you eliminate that thought. But does she have another thought that replaces that? No, that's the point. That's the problem is because we just look at diminishment of symptoms as seen as efficacy. So right. um, if they're not having these psychotic thoughts, that's improvement. But where's the functionality? Bob, and we don't, we don't to, assess that. Bob, I'm going to have to interrupt. I have to bring the show to a close. Okay, I talk I, like a madman. No, you are fabulous. This, okay. I, this is, I've had a great time. I think my guests, my, my listeners are having a good time. Um, would you like to continue this next week, next Monday? Would you be available? Uh, let me see. I've got to make sure I'm out going out of town. No, next Monday's fine. It's a you know what? Let's do the same thing for a while. We'll carry it where we can go okay. next week. I thought well. this was terrific. I thank you very, very much. My pleasure, and I'll talk to you next My week. My listeners, um, come next, next week. We'll have a more, and I hope some more of you will call in and, and get involved in the discussion. Take care, and goodbye. Bye.